Thank God for turning points in life. Thank God that people and circumstances sometimes do turn around for the good. Such turning points can be a gust of fresh wind in our sails. A child's life, for instance, seems headed for disaster, but one day you see a glimmer of hope, a fresh attitude, a sudden display of responsibility, an encouraging new interest. He cleans his room for no reason. You hope it's a turning point. Or maybe your favorite sports team is crushed by the rival team. And you write off the season in frustration. This is going to be, a, this is terrible, it's disaster, it's over. But a few weeks later, your team goes on the road to play that very same, same team and wins decisively. Whoa, where did that come from? We won. We look good. Maybe we've turned the season around. Might be a new boss at work that really changes the situation or new insight in a course of study. It might be a harmful habit that you finally break. A broken relationship that begins to warm. Turning points. One of the most exciting turnarounds in this life is when a new generation steps out of the shadows of the older generation with fresh devotion for Christ. On occasion, a stagnant church will see a group of young people turn the church's future into a new, vibrant path. On occasion... A new generation breaks free of an older generation's deficient theology and returns with joy to a more faithful understanding of Scripture. Such turnarounds are certainly rare, but when they come, they are a wonder to behold because they have the fingerprints of God all over them. This shouldn't happen. This is not expected. But there's this turnaround. This new day. Well, as we come to Numbers chapter 21 this morning, those fingerprints are all over this chapter. Numbers chapter 20, we hit pretty much the lowest point of the book of Numbers. It is doom and gloom. It's a bad chapter. Miriam dies and is buried in the desert, never to see the promised land in punishment for her rebellion. Moses, Moses disobeys God. He leads in a way that is unfaithful, lashing out in angry pride, depending on the flesh, relying upon his own actions, not relying on the words of God, operating in the flesh, not in the spirit, and he'll never see the promised land, but from a distance. Then Aaron dies, defrocked, of his priestly robes. He too will not see the promised land because of his sin. Numbers chapter 20 is doom and gloom, the lowest point of the journey from Egypt to Canaan. But chapter 21 is a turnaround chapter. 
It's not free of sin, as we shall see. But we witness in this chapter the fresh winds of a vibrant turnaround as the second generation begins to emerge from the ugly shadows of the first generation that is dropping in the desert in judgment. Chapter 21 is the story of the turnaround nation, of the new generation heading off in obedience to God. We find, first of all, this change very clearly marked in the first three verses as Israel destroys a rod and worships God. Verse 1, when the Canaanites, when the Canaanite, the king of Arad who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel's on the move toward the promised land. But that makes all the kingdoms along the way very jumpy, as you can imagine. And feeling threatened, the king of Arad attacks Israel and actually enslaves some of the people. Now we've gotten used to this nation. We've journeyed with them through the desert for quite a while and we know what comes next. We know what to expect here. A defeat, the capture the number of people. What do you expect? What do you know is coming? It's time to grumble. It's time to complain. It's time to say, Moses, you blew it again. Why this defeat? Cue the grumbling and complaining. Verse 2, and Israel vowed a vow to the Lord, to Yahweh, and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. Whoa. Where did that come from? Who are these people? Not only do they not grumble at their misfortune, they respond to their misfortune in dependence upon the Lord. In prayer, They vow to God that if he will supply the victory, they will turn over all the spoils of war in total sacrifice to God. You see the word destruction here, the Hebrew harem. It's devoted to total destruction as a total sacrifice to the Lord. This vow of Israel supports God's agenda. It supports God's stated intention to cut down the Canaanites due to their irrecoverable moral condition and their vile idolatries. Those idolatries epitomized in the widespread ritual sexual deviance on the high hills, the sacrifice of their children in the fire to their evil gods. It was a cancer these people, a moral cancer that had to be removed. And God has made this clear for 400 years that this is his agenda. And the children of Israel get in line with that agenda in prayer, in the midst of trouble. Israel's vow knowingly conforms with God's stated design. And the outcome of that is very predictable because our God is very predictable. He honors people who labor to glorify His name. And so we read in verse 3 that the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites and they devoted them and their cities to destruction, to complete sacrifice to God. So the name of the place was called Hormah. Do you remember Hormah? 
Does that name ring a bell? We've visited this city before. In chapter 14, this is where the spies, this is where the people of Israel were defeated after the spies said, we cannot take this land. Remember, they brought that report that it's unconquerable. God's just brought us here to exterminate us. And so down comes the judgment from God that then you will be 40 years in the wilderness and will drop in the wilderness. You will not enter into the promised land. And what did Israel do? Okay, we're going to go now. And they went into the promised land and they were defeated. And we read in 14 and verse 45, then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. This is significant. Text could be written different ways. It's written this way for a purpose. At the very place where Israel was ultimately defeated by the Canaanites four decades ago, at that place they now prevail. Their army wins. It's a new day. It's a turnaround victory of considerable consequence. Trouble. And Israel goes to God and synchronizes her prayers with his purpose. And God provides this amazing victory at this very place. Hormah. This does not mean, of course, that Israel is free of the flesh's susceptibility to sin. And we now witness yet even, we see their sin, but yet even in their sin, we see that a new day has dawned. Verses 4 through 9, as we come to the second movement of this text, Israel repents of sin and seeks God's salvation. Verse 4, from Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. Of course they did. They're skirting all the way around the nation of Edom. It's a major inconvenience. It's not happy land to be tracking through. The nation had tasted military victory. That may have had something to do with it as well. So we've defeated the Canaanites on our passage toward the promised land. But we've got to go around this Edomite nation because they are our distant relatives. It's irritating. And the traveling nation begins to lash out at God. Verse 5, the people spoke against God and they spoke against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. Horrible. They are driven by thirst, but they also complain against the manna, the bread from heaven that has fed them six days per week for 40 years. Where would they be without that bread? They wouldn't have made it. But here they are, the spirit of ingratitude deeply rooted in the human heart toward the supply of God. We know that ingratitude. And they express it fully here. God extends His just hand of discipline against this grumbling people yet again. It's a sin that just is not easily rooted out. And so we read in verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. 
be interesting to see how this looked. Interesting to see it from a distance, of course. But deadly venomous snakes whose bite burned and brought ultimately death. So many, there's so many people. You think of it, they're all encamped together in close quarters. And some of them become trapped as the camp unearths a colony of snake pits. They just simply can't get away fast enough. And as they scramble on their feet to escape, some are bitten and die. And again we say, well, here, cue the bitter grumbling. Here it comes. But again, it does not. That's not what we read in verse 7. Israel's response is stunningly different. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. They confess their sin. They have sinned against God. They had sinned against Moses. And they admit it. They come clean on their sin. This is a new day. They humbly seek Moses' aid as intercessor as well. We've seen Moses interceding for the nation time and again. And Israel has seen this as well and knows this. But here, the spirit is different. And they go to Moses themselves. And they seek his intercessory work. It seems, in fact, that even Moses has rebounded. There's a turnaround here. He, He had no ability to convince Edom to pass through their territory. But here he is again interceding for the nation effectively too. Verse 7, continuing, so that Moses prayed for the people. Verse 8, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is weird. I mean, right? Is this not weird? And I think that's the whole point. God is responding to Israel's sin here in a very unusual way. A way they're never going to forget. A way that gets their attention. It's not as strange as it might seem at first glance. For under the Old Covenant, God routinely used ritually unclean measures, polluting measures, in order to purify sinners. In chapter 19, for instance, it is paradoxically the ashes of a dead heifer that cleanses the people who become unclean by touching a dead body. Death atones for death. Ironically. It's not what we would expect. And so I think here, physical snakes are countered by a representative snake attached to a pole. A sort of scepter or standard representing the Lord's presence among the people. The Lord's power. The Lord's authority in the midst of this judgment. Well, our perspective puts a whole different take on it, does it not? Standing on this side of the cross, God, we can see, is carving out a thematic channel. 
He's pointing people in a certain direction concerning his salvation. It is an object lesson to help his people understand salvation from sin. How God saves his people. What we find here is the theme of paradoxical atonement. The forgiveness of sin in a way that seems the opposite of what it would be. And so it points us, as we know as Christians in this era, to Jesus who dies in order to rescue us from death. Jesus who dies for those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Jesus who enters into the realm of death in order to give life. These snakes, the source of death, this snake the source of life. He's pointing us thematically there to understand salvation under certain constructs. Secondly, there is a salvation by faith alone that gives life. What is Israel to do here? Look and live. Put it together as they're gathering around this scepter, this pole, that is high above their heads, and they look to that snake, like, what am I supposed to do here? Offer a sacrifice? Supposed to give money? What am I supposed to do? Is it just some of us born into the right family? Just, just the priests that live through that? Just look. Rivet your attention on the salvation that God has provided. The thematic channel takes us thirdly down to the theme of the victory over Satan and death. I don't think this snake is disconnected from Genesis 3.15 and the offspring of the snake that Satan will, or that Christ will crush as he crushes Satan and death. And the picture that is here is undoubtedly connected to this theme at some level. We have echoes of Genesis 3.15 here. So all of us, all of it pointing us to Christ. And we see this in Jesus' explicit teaching as he says in John 12, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. His death as an atonement for those who are dead. And he sees the parallel here in Numbers chapter 21. When I am lifted up from the earth, like that serpent in the desert, I will draw people to myself. They will look to me and live. As we read earlier in John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Look and live. Look in faith to the way that God has provided for salvation and you will have eternal life. All of this, we're being channeled in this direction. You may be here today and have not come to a saving relationship with God through the work of Jesus Christ. 
here this object lesson is laid out for you to see in this gathering at this place, providentially brought before this theme to look to the cross and live. To this one who is lifted up from the earth that we might look in our sin to him and live. Christ dying in order to deliver us from death. Christ taking on our sin and taking our place on that cross, dying there for us, paying the judgment of God. All of this in Numbers 21, channeling us here to the ultimate plan of God's salvation, the ultimate reality. The antitype to the type, saving us as we look to Christ and live. This isn't a look that gets your act together. It's not a look that you pay for. This is a look of absolute faith that I will see in Christ crucified and risen my only hope, my salvation and grace. Come, look, live. The nation now continues to journey around Edom and track northward into the Transjordanian plateaus. You see the third theater marked out here in the map of Moab. That's where the rest of the book will take place. And just remembering the journey as they're from the Negev to the south of the promised land. They've worked their way eastward and now are working their way northward. I doubt that it was that uh, straight of a route, not a 90 degree angle, but you get the idea of where they're working their way up this Transjordanian plateau. That means on the other side of the Jordan River Valley, this lifted up area that overlooks the promised land. They're working their way little by little up this uh, northward path, having gone around Edom, which I'm not really picturing here in my arrow, but Thirdly, we then see Israel journeying forward and singing for water. Verse 10. And the people of Israel set out and camped at Oboth. And they set out from Oboth and camped in Ai-Abarim, in the wilderness that is opposite Moab, toward the sunrise, toward the east. From there they set out and camped in the valley of Zered. From there they set out and camped on the other side of the Arnon, this river, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites, for the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. So get this. We don't know even where all these place names are. Many of them we don't know to this day precisely where they are in the wilderness. But here's the key. The Arnon is the border between Moab and the Amorites. Snooze. Like, who cares about that? Uh, It doesn't mean anything to us, but it's significant to the development that comes here. So just hang in there a bit. But here is where we are. And drawing from the book of the wars of the Lord, of Yahweh, the Lord, we don't know anything about this book now, but it says, Waheb of Sufa, and the valleys of the Arnon, and the slope of the valleys that extends to the seed of Ar, and leans to the border of Moab. Now, what on earth is that all about? 
The poem from this lost book establishes the border between the Moabites to the south and the Amorites to the north. The importance of this fact will become clear as the chapter unfolds. Verse 16, and from there they continued to beer, which in Hebrew means well. That is the well of which the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together so that I may give them water. They have gathered in judgment around the snake on a stick, on a scepter, and lived. And now having come to life, God gathers them again and says, I will give you water. And this is a beautiful turnaround statement, verse 17. Then Israel sang this song, spring up, O well, sing to it, the well that the princes made, that the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staffs. No longer complaining about a lack of water, the Lord leads his people out of the desert to a place where wells can be dug here, and God provides, and Israel is singing again. It's the last time we saw the nation singing. It was when they went through the Red Sea. And on the other side, being delivered from Egypt, they sang songs of praise to God. These songs were very significant. They're epic poetry, common in those days, to help the nations remember the turning points in their history. These songs recorded the important turning points in these ancient nations. And here Israel celebrates the digging of a well It's not insignificant by her leaders. Digging a shaft into the ground with their wooden scepters as tools, they painstakingly strike water, trusting God's provision. And the nation sings. Spring up, O well. Sing to it. There's a joyful people here. In fact, some even suggest that perhaps this song was written as they were digging that well. Imagine it took a while to get all the way down there with no tools like we would understand them. So the nation is singing joyfully and they're drinking water abundantly. God has provided and we can just feel the mood of the whole nation changing. The desert is in their rearview mirror. The promised land now grows closer and they rejoice that their thirst is assuaged by the grace of God. Eden Baptist Church, we're in really not a different situation in many respects. When we sing as God's people in worship, we display our joy in Christ. We display our hope in the future promises of God. That's why we sing. We gather as a singing people. We announce that all is not lost in this world. That Christ reigns from heaven's throne. That He will come again. That that we will be delivered from this waking world. We sing songs of hope. We sing songs of rejoicing. We are a singing people because of the grace of God. We sing because God is eternal and the challenges of this life are temporal. We sing as a church of singing people who have tasted the water of life in Christ freely. The water that He alone can provide. And so we lift our songs of joy and gladness to Him. We're a singing people. Israel now is a singing people. And we read there in verse 18 at the end that from the wilderness they went on to Matanah. 
and from Matanah to Nahaliel, and from Nahaliel to Bamoth, and from Bamoth to the valley lying in the region of Moab by the top of Pisgah that looks down on the desert. This elevated part uh, of the mountain where they could view the Jordan River Valley and into the promised land. The fourth movement here is that Israel defeats two Transjordanian kings and obtains their land. So we see the defeat of an enemy, again as bookends, at the beginning and at the end of this chapter. Israel defeats these two kings. First of all, King Sihon in verses 21 through 30. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into the field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway, this international route at the top of the plateau, then coming down to the Jordan River, until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. As Victor Hamilton observes, Israel must not only fight to enter the promised land, she must fight to get to the promised land. This military victory, in fact, becomes one of the most celebrated in the Hebrew Scriptures. It was a big deal. Israel loses here, she's done. This whole journey, it end right here, not in the promised land, but on the other side of Jordan. But she doesn't lose. Verse 25, Israel took all of these cities, and Israel settled in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon, and in all its villages, for Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Remember the poem above? Establishing the Arnon as the line of division here, the boundary. What's the point? Can Israel take out the Amorites? Has God given them that freedom? Yes. That's God's will. It's what He has called them to do. Can Israel take out the Moabites? No. They are related through Abraham to Israel. They oppose Israel. They are going to become the greatest opponents of Israel in this book. But you can't take out the Moabites. So if Israel is taking land that once belonged to the Moabites, are they violating God's law? No, they're recapturing land that Sihon had already taken from the Moabites. So the whole extermination of the Canaanites, many people like to just write it off, Israel's just being like every other nation, just killing whoever they can kill, is not at all the case. Israel very painstakingly and against all benefit skirts around Edom, does not touch it. 
does not take out the Moabites or even occupy what belonged to the Moabites. They have recaptured land that Sihon, the king of the Amorites, has taken from Moab. So this is very significant in the defense of the conquest. Verse 27, Therefore the ballad singers say, now what's going on here is here's another one of these epic poems, and they are using this as, as a text that proves that Sihon had taken this land from Moab. So the Amorite ballad singers say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built. Let the city of Sihon be established. It's not Sihon city, but he's taken it. For fire came out from Heshbon, flame from the city of Sihon. It devoured Ar of Moab and swallowed the heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You are undone, O people of Chemosh, their god. He has made his sons fugitives. That is, Sihon has made the sons of Moab fugitives and his daughters captives to an Amorite king, Sihon. So we overthrew them, Heshbon, as far as Dibon perished. And we laid waste as far as Nophah. Fire spread as far as Medeba. It's not particularly necessary that we understand. In fact, we don't even know where some of these places are. We just know of the military action. But again, Israel being very careful to establish that they are following the plan of God in all of this. The next king that is conquered is King Og, verse 31. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites, not of the Moabites, but of the Amorites. And Moses sent to spy out Jazer. And they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way to Bashan, further north. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them, he and all his people in battle at Indri. And the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. And they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left, and they possessed his land. How will Israel stage her journey across the Jordan into the promised land? She has to take out these people. God knows that. They are Canaanites. They are Amorites. And God so provides. Some of this journey and some of this military history, very important to us in a very general way. Israel is faithful to God in this and we see the historical process as they come now to the other side of the promised land and position themselves to journey in according to God's promise. That's all significant to us in a general way. But as we get specific here, obviously these place names and this whole military history is not going to change Monday morning for us. But as we stand back and look at what God has done here, It's a beautiful thing in this turnaround chapter. And that's the conclusion that we serve a God who works with sinners. We not praise Him for that. That's what we see here is God working with sinners. By all rights, Israel should be wiped off the face of the earth by now. But praise God, He works with sinners. 
God's anger against sin is real. He will not clear the unjust. But when sinners come to repentance, when they turn and trust to Him, God rejoices to forgive. He embraces us. He keeps working to sanctify us. This is who He is. We are in our human nature every bit as much of a mess as Israel. Filled with grumbling, complaining, and a lack of faith. Do you not thank God that He keeps working with sinners? He continues to work with us patiently and persistently. Yes, we too fall short of the glory of God, but praise God He does not give up on us. And sinner, He does not give up on you. He does not give up on me. It's not because we reach a place in our life where we impress Him. And he says, there's really nothing more that I can do but bless this child of mine because he or she is so righteous, so good, so flawless. No, the key to it is a repentant heart. A heart that with sin after sin after sin continues to come back to God and say, I was wrong, I have broken your law, I seek your face in forgiveness and grace and I look to Christ crucified and risen. With such hearts, God just doesn't ever seem to run out of patience. It's the only reason I'm standing here alive. The only reason. The only reason Israel's going to the promised land Where there is a repentant heart, where there is a faith trust in God's provision for the forgiveness of sin, God just persistently, patiently works with sinners. He will never betray you. He will never lose track of you. He will labor to restore you to Himself and to fellowship as long as you come to Him in trust and repentance. I'm talking here to people that are struggling with sin. I know your nature as I know mine. And we wonder sometimes, why do I grumble again? Why do I cave into the sin with my mouth, with my passions, with my desires, with my interrelationship with difficult people, with people sometimes that aren't difficult, I'm just difficult. The sins just keep, seem to just keep strung along and mark the path of our lives. Do they not? Our hope is not in us ultimately. God does not forget sin. He doesn't cover over it in the sense of just missing it or not caring. He is a just God that exacts absolute justice. But where Christ is crucified and risen, where He has taken our sin and paid the penalty, where He is on the cross lifted up, and where we are turning in faith and trust to what Christ has done to reconcile us to God, God doesn't give up on us. He just stays with you day in and day out. 
and never quits. What mercy. The people most to be pitied among us here today are those that have never come to saving faith in Christ. You've not looked to the cross and lived. You've not come to see Jesus' death in your place to pay the penalty of your sin. All I can say to you is look at that uplifted cross. See Christ dying there for you. Look to Him in faith. Nothing else. Just confidence in what He has done for sinners. Trust that. Put your hope in that. I plead with you. You've got no other answer. But to come to the only one by which we must be saved. The only one that can take us into the presence of God as justified, not on the basis of our goodness, on the basis of His. Look to Him and live. If you do not, the serpents that bit the Israelites and brought many to death, your lot is with them. Satan has bit you, sin has bitten you, and your only future is death is judgment before God as you meet Him in eternity and is judgment before God right now in little slow drip process as you live a life separated from Christ. Look and live. Come to the cross. See Christ's saving grace and embrace it by faith alone in Christ alone. His grace is necessary for you to come. But if you sense Him drawing you now, come, work with Him, trust with Him in Christ. For those of us who have looked and know that we are alive in Christ, notice the connection here in Ephesians 1 to the promised land and our inheritance. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. We too have a possession that we are walking toward, journeying toward as sinners who must continue to come back and repent of our sin, continue to seek God's forgiveness, but knowing that there is a promise of God in Christ for us that awaits. We will acquire this possession We too on this side of the cross on a faith journey in the light of God's great and precious promises may He find us walking in repentant faith looking always that we might live eternally. Let's pray. We are grateful, Lord, for Your mercies to us in Christ. We are thankful for this serpent on a pole lifted up to point us to Christ on a cross lifted up and to point us to the atonement for sin one dying to rescue the dead in sin Lord we praise you for this beautiful plan and we thank you for the reminder in the nation of Israel that there are turnaround moments there are turnaround people and we thank you by your grace that we are able to walk with you in faith and trust. Lord, take these truths and drive them deep within our soul as we rejoice in the salvation that is in Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.